Uh, and let me say now, there, there are some people whose conversations are decidedly one track, aren't they? You know the kind. No matter what you talk to them about, uh, they always end up getting around to one thing. I find it with people who have just bought Apple Mac computers. I don't know if you know people like that. And no matter what you ask them, they usually answer, well, I'm not sure, but I imagine you could do it much better on a Mac. <laughs> or you find it with girls who have just got engaged, don't you? Uh, no matter what you talk to them about, eventually they say, well, well, that's nice, but would you like to see my ring now? It can be a little bit annoying, can't it? Um, especially when you've got other things on your mind. I say that because when you read through 1 Timothy, you'll find Paul's like one of those people. Uh, and that can seem annoying. If, as I expect is the case, we've come to church, and even to the Bible here tonight, with all sorts of questions on our minds. In a financial crisis, how do I handle my money? Uh, do we save more? Do we give more? It might be other questions. How, how, how can I get a relationship? Uh, or how can I make this relationship I'm in work better? Or how can I get out of this relationship if I still want to be a Christian? I still others might be asking, well, how can I encourage my home group? Or how do I speak to that Christian friend who I suspect is living in a way that's just not honouring Christ at all? Now, we need practical help. A practical answer. It's just that when we come to Paul and ask those questions, his response seems to be something like, well, let me tell you something about God. And you want to say, Paul, I love talking theology with you. It's just that now, now, Paul, is a time for practical help. I've got things to do, people to deal with, things to figure out. And Paul says, will you let me tell you something about God? It can be a bit annoying. It's just that Paul would say to us, I think, my dear friends, these are the most practical answers, most practical questions that you can ever find answers to. Who is God? What is he like? What pleases him? What's he interested in? What does he think about? What does he feel about things? What does a friendship with him do to someone? Oh, you saw, didn't you, what Paul wants Timothy to know in chapter 3, verse 15. How people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God. And do you see what he's getting at? At being at home with God. At being at home with the living God. Uh, This letter might be specifically for a church leader, but it's also for everyone and anyone who wants to know How to live life at home with God. And you see what this letter presupposes about what it means to be a Christian. God through Jesus, God through what Jesus has done, adopts people into his family. He brings them into his home. See, that's what Christians are. Not church attenders, but family members. And now Paul wants to help you learn how to live for this God whose whose family we're in if we're Christians. So come back to chapter 1 and verses 12 to 17. And and here's the first question we're going to consider. So how do you serve a gracious Lord? Because that's what Paul tells us about this God who's revealed himself in Jesus Christ. He is gracious, verse 15. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners 
of whom I am the worst, says Paul. I made some great soup the other week. It was just fantastic. I got the recipe from a friend, made it for some other friends. Don't you love it when people have something at your house and they say, that's fantastic, what's in it? And you say, have a guess. Have a guess. And they start to pick out the flavours. Sweet potato? Yep, that's right. Garlic? A little. Is that coconut? Well done. And there's something else though. What is it? Oh, go on, have a guess. Is it lime? Spot on. I tell you, that wasn't just soup. That was a taste sensation. Uh, (laughs) See me afterwards, I'll give you the recipe for it. It It's great. Now, when it comes to God, do you remember Psalm 34 that was read earlier as well? It says this, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. You, you get the idea of what the Bible thinks when we, when we speak about God. He's not just a concept or, or an idea. If you, if you really get to know him, the flavor of his character will make you say, he is good. I want more of him. See, that's the experience of true Christians. At getting around God, getting to know him, they start to say, I want, I want more of that. I want more of him. Is that your experience? Or wanting more of him? Now you, you have a look at what we're told about him just in these verses, 12 to 17, that's in front of you. you. You start to pick out the flavor of his character as you look through these verses. See verse 13? How Paul says, I was shown mercy. And that mercy flavour comes back to you with a kick at the end of verse 16. You see it, but, but now it's also mingled with unlimited patience. See, so back at the end of verse 14, did you get that flavour? It's love. But the key flavour, the one from which all the others seem to come from, is at the start of verse 14. It's grace. Now Paul says as much. Uh, the grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly. Now grace, and shown in all its glory in verse 15, what you, when you see what he's come to do. Now this gracious Lord has come to save sinners. Not come for people who deserve anything. He's come to save sinners. And did you notice as we read that Paul can't mention grace without getting personal? You saw what he said about sinners. It's funny, we often talk about sinners and we talk about people out there. You see how Paul talks? Of whom I'm the worst. See, explaining how God saves someone for Paul isn't mechanical, it isn't a mechanism, it's it's not a formula. He might spell out the process clearly. We'll we'll see that next week, but he he knows it, it flows from a characteristic of a real person. A real person that you can know in the most personal way. Jesus Christ, who is God. He's been gracious to someone like me, says Paul. We sang it earlier, didn't we? Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Tis a heaven of heavens to me, and it lifts me up to glory. Why? For it lifts me up to thee. It's all about a person. So if that's what he's like, if this is what God is like, if he is gracious, then 
then how do you serve him? If you're going to link your life up with a God like this, how how do you live for him? How do you serve him? Well, here's the first thing. Let grace set all your expectations. Let grace set all your expectations. I, I think that's what Paul wants Timothy to be clear about. If you're going to serve this God, then the answer to all your questions about how you handle money or relationships or home groups or compromising Christian friends that are wandering away, they should, they should all be shaped by grace. Uh, the answers to those questions. Uh, just look at the situation Timothy's in. Come back to the start of chapter 1 in verse 3. Paul says this uh, to Timothy. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines anymore. See, Timothy's faced with people who are teaching and influencing the church in a damaging way. More than that, verse 7, they want to be teachers of the law, but they don't know what they're talking about or what they so confidently affirm. Now, these people won't be easy to deal with. They're confident and articulate. They're not shy with their opinions. You'll know people like that, won't you? Of course you will. They're, they're filled with types, aren't they? And people like you and me, confident in talking. It's not a bad thing. No, it's not a bad thing. And unless that confidence is combined with wrong ideas about God and life, then you'd be a nightmare to deal with. You'd be careful your confidence is not like that. But as you read through this letter, you'd, you see that Paul refers to other issues. There's this super spiritual giving ridiculous re- religious advice in chapter 4. There seems to be a group of women causing huge problems through gossip. And then there's the financially successful who, instead of becoming generous, have just become materialistic. And there also seems to be the financially pressured who are starting to think that contentment and security is really found in money. So in hard times, they rarely express joy in Jesus. You hear all that. That's what this church is is like. All that mess in it. Difficult people, awkward situations. And you, you begin to understand, I think, why Paul wants Timothy to know God is gracious. So here's a gracious God who doesn't give up on messy people. And if you're going to serve him, well, then neither must you. See, people are sinful and sin makes a mess of things and it will be like that for you in smaller ways. You, you'll be on the wrong end of un- unkind words at times, selfish actions, immature responses. The only time I can ever remember being bullied was as an adult and at the hands of a church leader. It wasn't physical, it didn't have to be, does it? But there was real threat because I wouldn't do what he said, he became threatening. See, remember, you live and work with sinful people. As the people in your home group, a, a friend at Sunday a.m., your, your husband, your girlfriend, the student worker. Now, they may sin against you at some point. You may come out of a meeting angry, upset, telling yourself, that's it, you're giving up, you've had enough. You'll meet the super spiritual who have yet to learn kindness is spiritual and arrogant complaining is a disaster. I'm not excusing any of this. There's no excuse. Sin is terrible. But, but what did you expect? If we need saving grace, well, it's because we're sinful. 
But in this family, we don't give up on each other. If we say we believe and serve a gracious Lord, we, we let grace set our expectations. It's easy to get fed up. It's easy to become a complainer. It's easy to think, why do I bother? It's easy to forget what God is like and what the gospel is about. See, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world <clears throat> to save sinners. See, if you're clear on that, well, you'll discover joy more than frustration. You, you'll be on the lookout for the growth that grace encourages. And it does lead to growth. You did notice, didn't you? Christ Jesus came to save sinners. Not to leave them the way they are. See, forgiven and brought back into God's family, Jesus really changes arrogant, sinful people through grace. If you know grace, you'll expect that. And that will keep you from writing people off too. So can I encourage you, if you've fallen out with a Christian friend, see, be the first one to pick up the phone to sort things out. And when you feel angry and frustrated, be the first one to humble yourself. Even if it means you don't get your way. Now, some of you find that difficult. Because you're so confident in your work. You're so used to having everything your own way, but it doesn't work like that in families, does it? And when a Christian friend is heading into sin, be willing to speak to them. Don't stand off talking about them, turning behind their backs, or chicken out of saying anything because you're worried what they'll think of you. See, because of his grace, the Lord Jesus came to save sinners. He was compassionate and patient with them, but he was serious about sin. He didn't duck it, and because he wanted them to be saved. See, if we're a church where grace is shaping our expectations, then we'll expect the ugliness of sin to appear at times. Temptations will arise with greed, arrogance, adultery, terribly evil things that ruin lives and dishonor God. But we will be committed to helping each other. And we'll expect to offer and receive forgiveness because of Jesus. Have you had to forgive anyone recently? Have you had to be humble and ask for forgiveness? See, if you've not, then I suspect grace isn't setting your expectations. Now here's the second thing. Make being transformed by grace your main ambition. And make being transformed by grace your main ambition. Not your only ambition. You can have others. You, you can want to succeed in your career. You can want to be a doctor, get married, go in the church plant, serve in a ministry. You can be ambitious about all sorts of things, but make this your main one. See, so if you had to define a good Christian in three words, what would it be? A regular Bible reading? A great praying voice? Active in church? Well, they're all good qualities. It's, it's just that they're qualities that I imagine the dodgy teachers from verses 3 to 7 would have had as well. So there's got to be more to it than that. To come back to verse 14. Because that's where Paul's life seems to be contrasted with the dodgy teachers. 
Uh, While they're causing controversy and indulging in meaningless talk designed to make themselves look good, uh, look what Paul emphasizes about himself in verse 14. You see it? Uh, The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Why would he say that? Uh, In contrast to all those other people. Why would he say that about himself? Well, stop and think about it for a moment and hear what Paul's saying. He's saying, don't forget. Don't forget at the heart of being a Christian, uh, whether you've got a position of leadership or not, whether you've got some big responsibility or not, at the heart of being a Christian is a genuine, transforming relationship with Jesus Christ. That's what's at the heart of it. Uh, That's what he means by the end of the verse where he says, in Christ Jesus. It's knowing him, it's being in him, it's your life linked up with him. See, most of us uh, like to talk about ourselves in a way that's designed to emphasize what we're good at. So people will think well of us. And when Paul talks about himself, the, the emphasis is all on his relationship with Jesus. And the difference that genuine relationship makes. See, how do you know if you've got one of those? How do you know if you've really got a genuine relationship with the Lord Jesus? How do you know if you're growing in Christ? How how do you know if you've been growing over the past year the way you should? And what should a friendship with this Lord do to you? Well, Paul says it's it's a relationship built on Jesus' grace towards you. You'll have all sorts of things in his mind. He's You'll talk about them through the letter, but when you you trust Jesus, he brings you in. You find that through the cross, he's paid for all your sin. He's taken all of God's just wrath on himself and said to you, not just that you're free to go, but more amazingly, that you're welcome to stay. Welcome to stay as loved and secure family members. And Paul says that grace was poured out on him abundantly. More literally, Jesus' grace superabounded to me. That, that's the kind of sense of what he says. It superabounded to me. It was like a flood. And it just carried everything along with it. And do you remember a few years ago when all the floods came to Sheffield? Those, those big floods. It was just after my wedding, actually. And as the rivers burst their banks, uh, the waters picked up all sorts of rubbish. Uh, floods usually carry all sorts of things along with them. So Paul says it's the same with Grace. If grace really comes into your life, it should be like a flood that brings other things with it. But it's not mess or debris. You see what it brings, verse 14? Well, it's faith and love. And that's what always follows along after grace. A faith, a a growing confidence or, or trust in Jesus Christ. Love, caring for others, even at my own cost. That's two things to look for to check if it's really grace you've got and not just some kind of fake religion. See, why would that be the case? Now, why would those two things come in with grace? Well, well, let me try and explain. And with faith and confidence in Christ, if, if I know I've been saved by grace, if it's nothing to do with me, if I've not done anything to deserve it, well, it doesn't rely on me then, does it? The focus of my confidence starts to shift away from what I can do and and onto the one who saved me. 
My faith, my trust, my confidence is in him. And the more I understand his grace, the more I understand that it's him that makes me secure, the more I'll find my faith in him growing. And that faith will start to define my approach to life. Because he's always trustworthy. Always secure with him. My faith in him, I'll I'll be confident not because of myself or my abilities. Not because I'm popular or I'm successful in work or relationships, but because of him and what he's done for me. And I'll be able to be honest about my failures and sin knowing that Jesus has saved me. My faith will be in Jesus alone and when I mess up I'll not pretend I'll ask him for forgiveness confident that he is gracious I'll be beginning to do what he says because I trust him I'll start taking risks in his service I'll start using my money the way he says I'll I'll be taking a stand as a Christian at school not because I have to but because I trust him For those of you who have done that, even at school, it's because he's become more important to you than even looking cool in front of your friends. The reason some of you have done that at school is, is because his grace has got you, changed you. It's an incredible thing he's done for you, given you that confidence in him. And what about love? Well, if I know I've been saved by grace, do you see what that will do for my pride? It's got to go completely, hasn't it? See, if my life is secure, not because of what I've done, but only because of what Jesus has done for me, then, well, I can't use anything I'm good at as any kind of tool to make me feel superior to others. I've not been saved because of anything I'm good at. So there's no room for arrogance anymore. It's got to go. I can't view or treat anyone as less important than me if it's really grace I've got hold of. And so I've got to start treating them with love. See, faith and love always flow on after grace. And grace is the one thing that can make you confident without making you arrogant. It can make you small in your own eyes without making you insecure. See, God wants to define your Christian life as a filled with faith and love through grace that comes through knowing Jesus Christ. Now, did it work for Paul? Did Jesus make him secure and loving? I think so. His testimony is all over these verses and it's brutally honest, isn't it? Verse 13, see what he says about himself? I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. So here's a man who can be honest about his past sin and no longer frightened of the skeletons in his closet. That's quite something. A secure enough to let people see the worst. And love for others? Well, look at his concern for other sinners in verse 16. You just scan your eyes over those verses and you you hear what he's saying. So here's a man who says one of his ambitions is to be an example of how bad a person Jesus will save. That's the opposite to how most of us think. See, we're desperate for people to think we're good and not Paul. Here's a guy who would sit down with the worst of the worst 
and tell them his story, not missing the humiliating parts if it would help them believe that grace was available to them. And that's a life shaped by grace, faith and love. I said, what about you? Have you been finding yourself becoming more confident in Christ? Better able to be honest in confessing your sin because you know you're secure? Have you had that sense of joy that even when things are tough, knowing Jesus is still enough? Have you found yourself in situations where you've been concerned for friends, even when it's inconvenient, you've helped them? Have you spent time encouraging them, forgiving them when they've hurt or ignored you? Have you found friends from school or, or, or university who are willing to ask you to pray with them about areas where they, uh, they struggle to live for Jesus? And not because they think you'll say it doesn't matter, but because they know you'll take it really seriously. But you'll also treat them with grace. So you become an example to them that if Jesus won't give up on you, then he won't give up on them. Because if you have, well then that's starting to sound like you've been growing in your relationship with the one whose enemies used to mock him by saying he was a friend of sinners. It sounds like you're being transformed by his grace. So keep that as your main ambition. I sometimes hear young Christians say things like, oh, I've been told I've got leadership qualities. I've been told I'm great with people. I've been told a million different ways how good I am. And that's fine. But it's not the main thing. Now, the main thing is, are you being shaped by grace? See, Paul ends this section in verse 17 by breaking into a kind of song. He says, Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honour and glory forever and ever. Amen. Now Paul's saying, all, all this talk about grace has reminded me again of just what God is like. You think about the question, how do you see an invisible God? How do you see a God who is invisible? Well, one of the ways you see him is through his gracious actions. See, how will we know? How will we know if the invisible God is really being trusted and responded to in this church family? How will we know if he's here? Well, according to Paul, he'll leave behind him a trail of flood debris. A flood of grace that will leave faith and love on display. The people trusting Jesus, taking risks for his glory, sharing their money and opening their homes, going overseas on mission trips, sharing the gospel with neighbours. Now one student wrote this to me recently. <clears throat> I was extremely nervous about talking about God, but since coming to Fullwood, as well as prayer and encouragement from friends, I feel faith in Jesus is not something to keep just for me, but to try to share with the people around me and especially friends who are not Christians. A grace starting to get to work in somebody's life, starting to give them confidence, starting to make them want to take risks for Jesus, even though it feels tough. And we'll see, won't we, in, in brothers and sisters loving and forgiving one another. 
and being humble enough to take correction and repent. And when they do, being welcomed home. And as that happens, Jesus Christ will be thanked and worshipped for his transforming grace and will increasingly become the theme of our conversations and our prayers and our songs as we serve this gracious Lord. Let's pray together.